Well, good morning. Good to, uh, good to see you today. My name's uh, Matt Kerber, one of the pastors at our church. We're inviting our young people to go, um, to go out uh, for children's church. Their teachers are eagerly awaiting them uh, for a time of learning, instruction, preparation, celebration, and many other things that I couldn't think to list at the moment. Um, so we're, uh, we're entering into a, a beginning uh, of a new sermon series. We have been slowly over time working through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, about once a year, we'll go through uh, a couple of chapters. We'll find a section and move through it. We're back in Matthew. And uh, we'll be looking at a part of this story of the life of Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew. We're looking at a part which is between uh, when Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem on the Sunday that we call Palm Sunday, and he spends a week in Jerusalem before his crucifixion and death. And... um, uh, we'll be covering, uh, up until uh, the, the night of his betrayal, we'll be covering his final week in Jerusalem. It's a week that's marked uh, particularly by growing conflict with the religious leaders. And this conflict will ultimately lead to his betrayal, arrest, crucifixion. Um, but we'll see, as we look at this passage today, the fault lines deepening and the conflict emerging as we read it, we'll, we'll have a window into the human condition, a window into situations that are not so far away from us. So um, let me read this text together from uh, Matthew uh, 21, and you'll, if you glance on page 8, you'll be reminded that we will close this reading by affirming this is God's Word for us. So Matthew 21, verses 23 to 32, and when he entered the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And he said, By what authority? And they said, uh, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I, will al- then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven? Or from man. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he said, uh, I lost my place. That's not what he said. That's what I said. Uh, He said, "I, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to his other son and said the same. And he said, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two will do which of the two did the will of the Father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. 
And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. The, uh, the verse I really want to pull out to begin looking at this is found at the very beginning. The chief priests and the elders come t- of the people, they come to Jesus and they ask him a question about his authority. By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you that authority? We're going to think today about the claims of authority that compete with us and the, the, the question of the authority of Jesus as he exercises that in our lives. Now, uh, as we, as we uh, look at it, we want to uh, begin by recognizing that uh, the original context is a little bit removed from our own, well, quite a bit, uh, two centuries, very different time and place, different part of the world. But there's some important similarities. The, uh, the people that we meet here, we're living in a complex world with competing claims to authority. The chief priests who came forward uh, along with the elders were people that had a limited measure of rule. But as the passage unfolds, we, we recognize that their authority itself, their authority is tenuous. It's, it's not real certain. We know that because when they're having this debate with Jesus, uh, Jesus you know, kind of puts them on the, the horns of a dilemma. He may ask them a difficult uh, question. He wants them to rule on the popular prophet John, and they hesitate because they say, if we go one way, he's going he's, he's to you know, show us the conclusion of following John, but if we, if we don't affirm John, we're concerned about our relationship with the people because John the Baptist was very popular. And I just want to point out what that's revealing is the underlying currents of uncertainty that these people had about their own authority. Now, in just a moment, we'll talk a little more background and show you the complexity of their situation. But it's not one unlike our own. In our modern world, we have all sorts of competing claims on authority, do we not? Uh, if you go back just a, a little bit, uh, a little bit ago, um, uh, during the uh, the terrible time uh, of these last couple of years, where we had disease ravaging the land, confusion, anger, hardship, difficulty, and uh, when when the COVID pandemic was at its height in the first summer, there was great uncertainty by the civil authorities on what to do. And there was one point where we were getting directions from the county, from the state, and from the federal government, and they were not all the same, right? So as if it was, it was hard enough to begin with, we had these different authorities speaking, and they were not all saying the same thing. Do you remember that? Well, well beyond that, one of the features of modern life is often described as the breakdown of authority structures. Many of the structures that guided life for, for people are, are, are falling apart. The, the, the social institutions that guided us, the church, the civic groups, the, the importance of the family, as these things begin to fade, we're left as people who don't have clear authority in our lives. And we have all kinds of people making authoritative claims that are competing with each other. It's a real confusion, isn't it? But at its root... At its root, the, the heart of our modern problem is we are people that don't like authority. 
the, the modern viewpoint, probably in, in this is where we're very different even than the ancient world. There's always competition for who's in charge, but we have in our modern viewpoint way of living a deeply ingrained philosophical belief that is suspicious of authority. Any authority from outside that makes claims on my life can be a threat, can it not? Let me tell you how I saw this illustrated uh, recently. I was uh, driving through Burger King, and uh, I came to the, uh, the, the, the little box there where I was going to talk into it. They had a recorded message that spoke to me as I pulled up, wanted to get a sandwich and, and some French fries, and the voice inside of Burger King said, very pleasant, welcome to the kingdom where you rule. That's amazing. I got my fries and I sandwich and I pulled over and I wrote that down. I said, I can't believe I was just told that. <laughs> Burger King invites me into the kingdom where I am the king. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that amazing? That's the most like modern Western thing a person could say. And it's uh, just completely untrue, isn't it? This is, Burger King is happy to affirm the rule of my own life if I give them money for the sandwich, right? It's part of their slogan, have it your way, we'll take the cheese off or put the, you know, put the lettuce on. But when you're sitting there at this stupid drive through box and, and you're trying to get someone to talk to you and they're taking their good old time, I feel like anything but a king. You don't control the hours of the, of the business. You don't control what's on the menu. Yes, I can get cheese or no cheese, but is that really what it means to be a king? <laughs> it's such an interesting, interesting window into our modern dilemma because it's not just Burger King. I mean, Burger King says that because it's part of our, of our sort of cultural moment, our cultural outlook that says you are the king of your own life. You, you should have no one telling you what to do. We're suspicious of outside authority. And yet, at the same time, we're really limited in how much we can actually control. We can't actually control that all that much. And it is hard to be king. There was an old saying, I don't know for sure if it's Shakespeare, but I, I think it may be the, the old saying, heavy is the head that wears the crown. You ever heard that saying before? Or you say, when one of your, your you know, friends has a new job with more responsibility, <laughs> they come home worried and burdened, and you say, heavy is the head that wears the crown. It's a burden to have responsibility. And maybe one of the other corollary re realities of modern life is we have this incredible burden as people to be kings of our own life. Well, th this is a passage that has at its root the question of authority, and Jesus challenges these religious leaders with the, with the reception of his authority. But at the end of the day, when we boil the passage down, this is really what's happening. Jesus shows up, sent by God with the authority of God, and they don't want any part of it. And the question they're asking, whose authority, which authority, what's going on, all this is they're dancing around. It's kind of political. All right? They're dancing around the issue. Jesus says, ultimately, I come from God, and they don't want him. 
So we'll do three things as we look at the passage. First of all, just a, a quick reminder on background. Uh, secondly, we'll see why Jesus is answering this way. But third and finally, we're going to swing it back around and say, what does this mean for us? As people suspicious of authority and weary for the burden of running our own lives, how does Jesus not only challenge us but invite us into a way of living in which he is a good and gracious king? That's going to that's bring uh, the whole thing uh, full circle as, as we move through this. So first of all, background on all of this, we're introduced here to these people in verse 23, the chief priests and the elders. Um, these were Jewish people that had a great deal of authority in the very limited setting of the temple. So uh, the backdrop here is Jesus is coming back to the temple. When they challenge him on the authority to do, quote, these things in verse 23, that refers back to what other things that happened earlier in the chapter. And we had a little break in our sermon series, so you might not remember it, but Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. He entered triumphantly. The crowds cheered for him. They began to use language from the Bible that's associated with the, the hope of a Messiah, the anointed king in Greek called the Christ. This language begins to come out as Jesus enters the city to great fanfare. And that means the stakes are raised. Either he's going to be received as the king from God or ultimately rejected. The, di the dice has been cast, so to speak, as Jesus enters in that way. In, in a setting where there's great uh, conflict and, 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 and uh, uh, division among the people, Jesus does the thing that no one wants as soon as he enters the city. He aimed his guns, so to speak, at the temple itself and cleansed the temple from the money changers. So, some of you may be familiar with the story. You may remember when we did it before. But when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem against the backdrop of all sorts of uh, uh, cultural concerns, he did the thing people didn't want him to do, or certainly these people didn't want him to do. He drove money changers out of the temple and said, get back to your original purpose, which is prayer. Now, just quickly, in fact, unpack that real quickly. I said there's a lot, there was a lot of competing claims of authority. At this point in history, the Jewish people are ruled by the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire itself was always full of factions and one, you know, one leader fighting against another leader and all these conflicting claims of authority. But beneath that, there was a certain amount of freedom that they had to run the affairs in the temple. These people that we see here were the people that had been elevated to positions of leadership, but their position was being challenged. The other group of characters that we've met before and we'll see again are called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees didn't have political power, they weren't in charge of the temple, but they were very serious about the law. And they criticized the chief priests, or the party of the Sadducees, as being compromised. They said, listen, the reason you got to have this power in the Roman Empire is because you're compromised. You've given in to Rome. So there's this deep background conflict going on. We see it all over the place. Usually they will argue with each other, but when Jesus threatens them both, they can unite together to go at Jesus. But the background is one of complex inner party fighting. 
But when Jesus came, he didn't take the side of this one group against the other. He didn't take a side of the people against the Romans. But he said, I want the temple to be purified. I want to have worship the way it's supposed to be. I want your hearts to be right before God. And he came in, and in so doing, he threatened the status and the income and the stability of these people in particular. And so they come to him asking, what is your authority? Who gave you the right to cleanse the temple? That's the question. Now, Jesus, uh, uh, we'll see in just a moment, comes back with a, a different question, uh, but it's important to recognize that in this setting, uh, uh, the stakes are being raised and the tensions are rising. The second thing we'll see as we look at the passage, though, is we'll recognize that um, uh, Jesus has sort of a two-part response. Uh, the first thing, it m- might seem like it's a little bit of a, a sneaky answer, but he essentially says, okay, I'll ask you a question. And he, and he asks them a question about John the Baptist. As we said before, John was a very famous prophet. People from all over the realm respected him. They went out to see him. But the most important thing John did for our purposes here is that John prepared the way for Jesus. You may remember early in the Gospel of John, different John, by the way, uh, John the Baptist saw Jesus come and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Essentially, everything John the Baptist was doing was a prelude for Jesus. He was setting him up. He He handed him the baton and said, go, you're going to complete the ministry and take it to a new level. If you go back early in the Gospel of Matthew, you would see that John and Jesus essentially had the same message, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. So, so if, if, the, if these, um, uh, uh, not the Pharisees, but the, the chief priests were to say, yes, John's from God, he's a prophet, we recognize his authority, then Jesus would say, listen, he spoke about me. And they're stuck. But again, exposing the, the factions and, and the uncertainty even of their position, they're afraid to speak against John, John the Baptist, because the, the crowds, the polling for John is good, we might say in modern terms, right? John the Baptist is polling well and is politically unwise to go against them. That's what's going on in this setting. But what Jesus is doing is actually important, and it's not just a sort of political trick. Because of John's role, and both in setting up Jesus, but John, according to Jesus, was himself a prophet. John came with the authority of God. That's what it means to be a prophet. And so this question of authority is a very natural place to move the conversation to John the Baptist Because John, as a prophet, came with the authority of God and prepared the way for Jesus. They they refused to answer. Jesus says, well, then we're at a stalemate. I'm not going to answer either. We see his wisdom in dealing with people who are trying to get him. There's something something to learn there uh, as Jesus engages with these people. But Jesus doesn't end there. He goes on. He tells three parables. The first, the shortest one, is in our text this week. The next two weeks, we'll see to follow-up parables, and they're all very similar. They're with two groups of people who respond to authority in different ways, right? Again, we'll see this question of authority emerging in the parable of Jesus. 
So Jesus, verse 28 says, all right, we're not moving forward on the question of John the Baptist. Let me tell you a story. Tell me what do you think of this story? It's a story of the reluctant teenager, right? The man has a vineyard. He tells his son, go do your chores in the vineyard. And there is one child that says, yes, father, I will go. Isn't that great? It's really nice. Nice of them to agree so readily, completely, without argument. And then it doesn't happen. Has this ever happened to you? We'll, we'll spare any specific uh, names to protect the guilty and the innocent. But there's another, there's another teenager involved here, and, and this teenager has a different response. They're told to go work in the field, and they grumble and complain. Now, why? You never, you never make him do it. You know, why is it me? I have to go out. My friends don't have to go in the vineyard. After all the grumbling, they go out and do it. This is, that's the setting here, Right? Now, I was thinking about this, and I thought, I don't want to impugn anyone too much, and I was thinking of, of variations on it. Uh, uh, you know, uh, today we'll have in our congregational meeting uh, a vote on Naaman Cho as associate pastor. So with that in background, I'm going to tell you a secret about Naaman. <laughs> Naaman is really good at doing the dishes. This is true. I don't know if you know this. I live next to Nauman, and my second floor window looks into Nauman's kitchen. <laughs> and so I was thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the story and make it to be about the pastor who refused to do the dishes. <laughs> and if you looked in my house, you would say, ah, that's the one. I may agree to do it quickly. But that doesn't happen. So that regardless of what Naaman says or whether he grumbles or agrees to do it first, we do know, I can tell you, verify, Naaman does the dishes. He is, he is a good and faithful servant doing his appropriate duties in the family setting. So all that in the background, Jesus says, which is right? Which is right? And the answer is, well, we would rather have neither of those two things if we had a choice, right? Wouldn't we rather have uh, the teenager that says, yes, I'll do it, and then they go do it? That's not the point of the story. Watch where Jesus goes with this. This is very interesting. He makes it about the people he's talking to. He says, which of them did right? And he says, they answered. Who's the they? They is the chief priests and the elders of the people that are trying to hook Jesus on the question of what authority he acts under. And he's, he's essentially answering their question with a challenge of its own. He says, you are people that, that just go out of your way to talk about how you're doing the will of God. But you don't actually do it. John came with the way of righteousness from God. Essentially, Jesus answers the question, by what authority did John speak? Jesus says, I'll tell you what authority. He came from God showing a plan of righteousness. Jesus is not uh, undetermined on the authority of John the Baptist. But he tells him, he came from God, and you who claim to be God's people refused him when he came. And he said, there's another group of people here. And they, they, you know, from your perspective, they've been refusing God for a, a long period of time. And then Jesus names the two, uh, we might say, most visible stereotypes 
of unrighteous behavior that they can imagine. The prostitutes and the tax collectors. If you were in the ancient world in, in, in Jewish, uh, Jesus' Jewish communities talking to you and you said, think offhand, right? Name two people that are bad. Someone would say, ah, tax collectors. They work for the Romans. They've sold out to the enemy. They are working for the empire. They're robbing their people. They're getting rich doing it. They have sold themselves to, and bring destruction to our community. Now, of course, individual circumstances of a, a tax collector could vary, but as a whole, that's what was happening. In, in a similar way, we understand the, the individual circumstances of, of a prostitute. Could, she could be driven there by personal need or, or oppression or any number of things. But in, in, this sort of, in this sense, what was happening, we think about it. You know, here's a person who's, again, selling themselves to destroy, and in the process, destroying the fabric of our society. That's how they would have answered and both of these folks were viewed as marginalized outsiders in contemporary culture. And as such, both of them were in positions where they were personally getting wealthy, but they were really stuck. Well, Jesus said, did you notice the thing that happened when, when John the Baptist preached in the desert? He said the people responded to him. And those that had been turning away from God, even with the most, you know, textbook example of unrighteous behavior, they changed their mind. But not you. Jesus challenges the religious leaders. You're here trumpeting your own righteousness, your own goodness, your own stuff. But when God shows up, you don't receive him. We could summarize the whole thing and say it's, it's far more important to change your mind when God confronts you than anything else. It's far more important, no matter what our life has descended into and where it's gone and where it's turned or what may have happened to us, no matter what mistakes we've made, what sins we've committed, how far we've gotten from God, Jesus holds before us the incredible opportunity that we can change our mind and come to Him. In fact, this moves us really into the heart of the gospel. The thing that Jesus was doing in the city was, was not to side with the Pharisees against the Sadducees, was not to side with the Zealots against the Romans, with the, the one temple group against the other. Jesus came to Jerusalem knowing that he would die. And he came for people that needed a savior. Our situation may not be as far gone as these two characters that Jesus puts before us, but our need is just as deep. We are people who desperately need a Savior. We need someone who could save us from our sin. More important than the, than the uh, conflicting groups and political questions of their day was the need for a Savior who would open the gates of heaven and open to them the way of righteousness, even for those lost in sin. Jesus has two criticisms. He says, first of all, he says, you, you know, I came to you and you didn't receive me. But look, it is a really interesting thing that he says at the end, verse 32, for God came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. 
There's a second level to their problem. Jesus says, not only did you not receive John, but when you saw the tax collectors and the prostitutes believing John and entering the way of righteousness and changing their mind, that didn't even change you. The message of the kingdom is beginning to bear fruit in their midst. You realize how incredible it was that someone who was a tax collector walked away from their booth? They heard the word of the Lord through John the Baptist in the wilderness. They walked away from their power and privilege and prestige back into an uncertain place in, in, a, in a community that hated them. But they were, they were struck to the heart by God. And they walked into a path of righteousness. It's unbelievable that they would do that. Jesus says that the prostitutes have walked away from their life into the, into, the, uh, into the way of righteousness. In our ministry partnership, uh, Chrissy and I have each summer, we go to Bulgaria and we work with a missions team in Bulgaria. One of the ministries that uh, our um, the PCA ministry in Bulgaria has been working with is a, a ministry called Daughters of Bulgaria. It's a ministry that helps women leave prostitution. And I know enough being around it to tell you it's really, really hard. It's really hard for these women who have been uh, uh, deeply embedded in a life of shame and brokenness. It's really hard to leave. It's, it's, a, it's a miracle when it happens. It would, would have been the same in the first century. It didn't happen every day. People didn't walk away from their tax booth. They didn't walk out of a, a life of sexual sin and just you know, say, hey, here I am. I'm, I'm doing the right thing now. It was a testimony to the power of God working through John the Baptist who's preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said, even after you saw that, you didn't change. Their hearts were hard. In closing, let's bring this back around to ourselves. Our situation isn't exactly the same. The, the, the chief priests were clinging to their power and their religious system. They were threatened by Jesus, and their hearts were unwilling to yield to his kingship. They were threatened by Jesus and the, the, the implied claims that he was the anointed king the Messiah, the Christ. They weren't ready for that. They weren't ready to relinquish their, their power and their rule before him, I suspect. Now, our, our situation isn't, isn't exactly the same, but as people who are deeply suspicious of claims of authority outside ourselves, I wonder if the, the challenge is also very similar. You, you can't live in the kingdom where you rule and have Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's, it's the first thing you give up. Right? You, you can't say, in all of my life, I'm going to have it my way, and Jesus, why don't you show up and help me, help me have it my way? Because he comes making a claim of authority. And, and the very nature of that cuts against not only the prevailing ideas of modern Western culture, but it, it, it cuts against the default of the human heart. We don't want a king over us. 
It's, it's not just Americans in our history of you know, tea parties and rebellions. It is deeply rooted in the human condition. We, we want to be free to do what we want. Friends, I, I just want to encourage you this way. I want to encourage you by reminding you of the type of king that Jesus is. His claims of authority are embedded in a larger ministry. When he entered Jerusalem, he didn't come on a war horse, but he rode a donkey, which according uh, to the prophets was a sign of his humility. He came showing that he's the kind of king who rather than taking life to build himself up, would give his life that we would find blessing. I'd like to leave you with this thought today. Jesus is a king who can be trusted. Jesus is making, even now, claims of authority on your life. He, he says, I am from God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but me. Are the words of Jesus. And we have to wrestle, do I believe it? Do I believe that Jesus has the right to tell me how to live? Do I believe Jesus has the right to tell me to love my neighbor, to pick up my cross, to use my time and my resources in a certain way? Does he have the right to do that? Jesus believes that he does. And at the end of the day, on that question, there are really only two answers. That's the way these parables are going to work. You believe them or you don't. You receive them or you don't. You submit or you don't. But the lordship of Jesus is a kind and gracious and gentle lordship. Friends, if you're anything like me, about five times a day you get weary of running your own life. Don't you? I mean, default, we keep coming back to it. Martin Luther said in the very beginning of the Reformation, the Christian life is daily repentance because we keep going back to running our own life and we keep repenting and giving it up again. But do you know the feeling, the weight of the heavy crown on your head where you feel, you know what, if it really is the kingdom where I rule, then that means it's all on me. That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of burden. Jesus said, listen, let me be king. Take up your cross and follow me. Yes, he'll ask us to do things that are hard. But when it comes to wearing the crown, the crown of ruling all things, he will take that weight upon himself. He takes upon himself the weight of our sin, the weight of our rebellion, the weight of our hostility to God and to others. He takes upon himself the burden of making sure he, he can care for us as we move into the future. We sang in one of our songs, he guides our feet home. Friends, God is not asking you to take upon yourself the authority of running your own life, of safeguarding your own future, of determining all of your own course. He's not asking you to hold on your own head your eternal destiny. He says, give that burden to me. And we see what he did on the cross, how he gave himself for people who were his enemies. We know that that's a king who can be trusted. Would you join me as we pray together?